Folks, turn back with me in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to Paul's letter to the Ephesians and to chapter 2. One of Paul's expressed goals within writing this letter is to encourage the Lord's people in their walk with him and in their dedication to his church. Really, this letter is an exhortation. It is an encouragement to those who profess faith in the Lord and an encouragement and exhortation to them as to how they should live. The Ephesian church needed encouragement, just as you and I and this church and every other church needs encouragement. We need encouragement in our walk with the Lord day by day. Indeed, we are called to do that by uh, the Lord himself, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. But for the Ephesians, their church was a a fledgling uh, church. It was a church that was in a, a society that was difficult, that was beset by idolatry and uh, paganism. It was in a place where people worshipped a false god named the great Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. There was a great temple built uh, to her and antagonism uh, of those who sold the merchandise of Diana dogged uh, the area and indeed uh, the church your own Sinclair Ferguson said the Ephesian church, the Ephesian Christians were marginalized in a pluralistic culture, tolerant of many things, but not of the Christian gospel or the church which proclaimed it. Aren't we living in similar days and in a similar society? Indeed, as we open God's word, we see immediately its relevance and the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. And so Paul wrote to encourage the Ephesian believers in the face of this pluralistic society that was antagonistic uh, towards the gospel and to them as the followers of Jesus to remind them of the blessings that were theirs and how secure they find themselves in and through the gospel of Christ that they were anchored themselves in the purposes of God, that Christ had conquered, that he had risen from the grave, that he was alive and at the right hand of God the Father, the one who has all dominion and all authority and all power. This was the one who they had surrendered their lives to in faith, and they were absolutely secure and right in doing so. And the encouragement stands for you and I today as people who follow Jesus in a pluralistic culture that is intolerant to the gospel. That if we are in Christ, we are absolutely 100% secure spiritually. Whatever may come to pass and whatever difficulties we may face, he reminds us in chapter 1 that we are chosen and we are adopted and we are reconciled and it's all in Christ. You would have noticed many times in chapter 1, in him, in him, in him, in him. Who is he talking to? He's referring to Christ Jesus, in Christ. That's a theme throughout his letter here, 27 times in this letter. He refers to in him. In Christ we are redeemed by his blood. In Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we are restored. That through the Spirit we are secure. He is a guarantee, a deposit, securing our guarantee. Paul prays that we might have the eyes of our hearts opened and enlightened, that we might understand the wonderful blessings and the power that is ours 
in Christ, uh, Christ the Savior, the one who we follow, that we would have the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of God within our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian believer. That's what it means to accept the gospel of Jesus, to know that we have been chosen, and we looked at that the last time I was here, and we're called to choose, uh, but that we are redeemed and forgiven, and it's nothing in and of ourselves. It's all of Christ the Savior. That's what it means to be a Christian. The first point, you might argue, of uh, coming to truly understand something is when we go to the very basis of that thing. And that's what we sought to do yesterday uh, with the young folk. We looked at the basis and then the blessings of the gospel. And the basis of the gospel is stark and it's depressing and it's a dark picture. And yet it's wholly necessary that we take hold of that to truly understand who we are and by extension how wonderful the gospel of grace truly is. You know, for a, a, an alcoholic, for example, they have to reach the point when they're willing to say, I am and I always will be an alcoholic. I have a problem. And for us who are sinners, it, it, it means that we must come to the same point and say, I am a sinner and I will always be a sinner whilst I walk this earth. I am even in Christ Jesus. As I come to salvation, I'm free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but not yet free from the presence of sin. So the first thing that we have to do is understand and acknowledge our sinful hearts before God. And that's really what Paul does here. He, he starts out with the blessings. Look at all the blessings that are yours in Jesus. Look who you are. Look where your identity is found. Look where your salvation is based. Look at the foundation of your faith. It's all in him. It's in Christ. But then he goes into chapter 2 and he begins to reiterate the problem. The, 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 the reason, the origin of the gospel, you might say, and that is the brokenness of the human heart. That is the sinful nature of the human heart. And he says three things. He says that we, outside Christ we are dead, outside Christ we are enslaved, and outside Christ we are condemned. It's a pretty bleak picture. It's a pretty dark picture, isn't it? And that's the truth for us today if we are outside Christ Jesus. If we have not yet come to our knowledge and understanding and an acceptance of the lordship of Jesus and his salvation and his offer of eternal security outside of him we are still spiritually dead enslaved to sin and condemned as objects of wrath according to the outset of chapter two here so let's just look at that very briefly now they say the darkest hour comes before the dawn but it's really important, just as we did yesterday, that we really take hold of that basis, foundation, reality off from where the, the gospel arises. And that is, of course, the deadness of the human heart, the rebellious nature of our sinful uh, idol factory, which is a heart. So these three things very briefly before we get on to the, uh, the more positive and good news of the gospel. Outside Christ, we are dead. This is a universal statement. It's not some people are dead, but it's outside Christ we are dead. That outside of him there is no spiritual life. We are like a corpse. We may have eyes, but we cannot see. We may have ears, but we cannot hear. Such is the nature of a corpse. It is a reality through life. In Scripture, and indeed in the world in which we live, the brokenness of humanity man's inhumanity to man dominates the headlines 
keeps the front page. We see it every time we watch a news headline, every time we read a paper, there is just grim stuff happening out there. And it doesn't just happen, it is out of the human heart that these things occur. Now, of course, the rebuttal may come and says, well, I know people who are outside Christ and they're very much alive. And it looks like they're, they're thriving to me. They, they deny Christ, but they have everything that they would ever want, everything that they would ever need. Well, that speaks into another question that we have to answer, and that is, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And I guess we can't answer that uh, quickly, but let me just give you a, a brief overview of the meaning of life, the purpose of life. We were created in the image and in the likeness of God. We were created in His image and in His likeness to bring Him glory, to live for Him and to Him uh, and to bring His name glory. But due to the fall, we have been alienated from that. We have rebelled against God. We are born into sin. We are natural born uh, sinners. It comes from the heart. Just as a worm is laid, the insect lays an egg on an apple blossom and the apple grows around it, and the worm eats its way out from the apple. So it is with sin. It doesn't begin out there, but it's what's in here. It's out of the heart that the sin comes. And it's our sin and our brokenness that have separated us from God, Isaiah 59. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the problem. And you see, what matters is not what we amass in life, not how much we gather together, not the wealth that we accrue. It's not how successful we are or the respect that we garner. It's not the house that we buy or the car that we drive or the bank account that we own. The, the true meaning of human life, the true human worth is found in the soul. And we are created in God's likeness and image. And if we are away from him, we are not fulfilling the life that we were created for. We will always find a yearning and a wanting and a, a, a lack of fulfillment within our lives. God has called us to himself, but so often we've turned away. No, God. I want to do my own thing, forge my own path, be master and commander of my own destiny. It's said in chapter 1 that we have trespassed. To trespass means a willful neglect, a willful neglect of God's word. It's the result of sin, a waywardness in our own, in our own hearts. And what that tells us is the problem is significant and it's far-reaching and it's beyond us to do anything about. We are dead spiritually outside Christ. But not only are we dead spiritually, he says we are enslaved to sin. Uh, I grew up under the ministry or part of my uh, growth in, in my Christian faith under the ministry of David Meredith. And David was famous for having, you know, a three-point sermon with 65 subheadings. So here's the second point, but we've got three subheadings within this. So we're enslaved to sin, says Paul, but we're enslaved because we follow the ways of the world, number one. We follow the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, number two, that's Satan. And number three, we follow the cravings, desires, and thoughts of our flesh. So that's how we're enslaved. We're enslaved because of these three things, following the ways of the world, the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, uh, the following the cravings of our heart. Following the ways of this world, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? 
Um, for most people, being alive is simply conforming to a set of cultural ideals that are set in place by the majority of the population. So what is living? Ask yourself that question. What truly is living? Is it growing up, going to school, getting a job, having relationships, being thin, being pretty, being successful, having a home, having a nice holiday, having a decent car, having a ba- Is that life? Is that truly living? Or is that just conforming to a set of ideals which 21st century, century Scotland decrees is indeed living? No, no. We are created for much, much more than that. We are created to know God and to enjoy God and to glorify God. What's man's chief end? What is the main purpose of of mankind, says the Catechism? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is the true meaning of life. When talking of mankind, Isaiah says in chapter 43, 7, everyone, the Lord says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created us for his glory, but we've been sucked into popular culture to think if we meet the cultural ideals of the society we live in, then we will have made it. Then we'll be happy. But we won't, because there will always be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Whereas if we live distinctly from the culture, but in line with Scripture as it's set forth, that is unchanging and steadfastly immovable, just as the Savior is, then we will find meaning in life and we will fulfill the mandate for which we were actually made. Because just following the crowd is not living. Only dead fish go with the flow. I'm sure you've heard that one before. It's what John Stott called cultural bondage. He said, where the culture of TV, internet, glossy magazines, celebrity gossip is so persuasive that it holds us in its grasp. And that's true for us until Jesus comes along and liberates us from that cultural bondage. We follow the ways of the world. We follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Bob Dylan wrote a great song, You've Got to Serve Somebody. You might be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Who is it that we're serving? What is it that is enthroned in our lives? We talked a bit about that yesterday uh, in the student conference. What occupies the throne of my heart? What is the thing that gives me joy? What is the thing that I live for? If it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol, and it will let us down, ultimately. Most people would be horrified if you suggested that they followed the evil one, followed Satan. I certainly do not. I do nothing of the kind. And yet Paul says, outside Christ, we are in bondage uh, to the devil. We're in his captivity. And yet he is a toothless foe. He has been defeated by Jesus. And Jesus comes to free us from his dungeon and from his uh, shackles. And we're transferred from the lordship of Satan to the lordship of Christ as we come to follow Jesus. And thirdly, it says we follow the cravings, desires, and thoughts of our flesh. I don't think we need to say too much about that. The desires and inclinations of our hearts are not always pure. Our motives are not always good. Our desires are not always helpful. Indeed, in my experience, quite often the opposite. And so what we need to do is rely all the more on the Savior and on prayer to the Savior to save us uh, 
from our own hearts and the wayward nature of our own hearts. So, outside Christ we're dead. Outside Christ we're enslaved. And outside Christ, he says, uh, we are objects, condemned as objects of wrath. And we were by nature children of wrath, verse 3, like the rest of mankind. So against there's a, again, there's a universal element uh, to his assertion here. You would think he might have said enough about the pre-Christian state, but he goes on, just as he goes on about grace uh, following uh, this. It's this real emphasis that he places on truly understanding and grasping and acknowledging the waywardness of our hearts, the wickedness of our minds, the wretchedness of the human frame, and how everything is tainted by sin, even the goodness, even the good things that we do is so often with the wrong motive, the motive that we might be praised or applauded or lauded, or for what we might get out of it, even when we're doing good things, being uh, kind. God's wrath is a solemn thing, and it's something that we have to take seriously because it is a reality. Now, God's wrath is different from the anger of man. It's not malicious or capricious. It's not him flying into a temper. John Stott put it this way, God's wrath is neither spite nor malice nor animosity nor revenge. It is never arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is never subject to mood, whim, or caprice. Very different to the anger or to the wrath of man. God's wrath is justified. We have transgressed his law. We have broken uh, his uh, command because of our fallen nature. So, bottom line this morning, we are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Ah, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bottom line, we are sinners born into sin, alienated from God, fallen, corrupt, spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, shackled to it, in bondage to the evil one and his desires and his uh, motivations within our hearts, spiritually dead, condemned as objects of wrath. We are in big trouble if we are outside Christ. It's a bleak picture. But we come here this morning with great hope and with great joy, and we come to take the elements of the bread and the wine to celebrate the fact that in Christ we are offered life, and in Christ we are offered transformation, and that in Christ we are offered a place in his eternal kingdom that cannot be taken from us. That if we are in Christ, then we are absolutely, wholly, completely, eternally secure, immovably so. There is no one that can snatch us from the Father's hand, says Jesus. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that there is no one and nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This Jesus who is dead and who is alive again. This Jesus who went to the cross and gave his life, laid it down only to take it up again. The one who gave his life as a ransom for many. The one who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Why? So that you might be saved. So that I might be saved. So that we may have a place in God's eternal kingdom. 
And it's signaled to us in verse 4 by those, just that one uh, little word, three letters, but pregnant with significance, but. Here's the picture, says Paul, dead, spiritually dead, enslaved, condemned, but. And it's not just but, but it's but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So whilst there may be deadness and sin, there is life in Christ. And that's what we celebrate this morning. And that's what the Christian knows and motivates the life of the Christian believer, that in Christ we are alive, more alive than we've ever been And we have the great promise of being even more alive, even though death may come for whoever believes in me shall never die. And those who die shall live even though they die. So whilst there is a bleak picture through the reality of sin in life, there is also great hope in the gospel. So let's just look at these three things, life through the love, life through the mercy, life through the grace of God very briefly before we come to uh, God's table to celebrate the gospel and to remember, to examine our own hearts and to repent of that which we need to repent of, but to take the bread and the wine, to rejoice in the great hope that we have in Christ, the life that is ours through him. We have life in his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Did he send Jesus because we were attractive, because we were living in a way that warranted his grace and his goodness? Quite the opposite. We were sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to it, condemned in the sight of God. And yet it's into that reality that Jesus sends his son and that his son Jesus is willing to go and it's for you. I'm sure the gentleman here uh, married will remember when you first met your wife and where you courted with your wife and everything was flawless. The hair wasn't out of place. The makeup was done. Clothes were good. And now there's, you know, dressing gowns and curlers, all these kind of things. It's a different, it's a different picture. Um, I'm not saying that we would have made a different decision had we known that in the beginning. But of course, for the ladies as well, I mean, you would have seen your, I'm sure, the man that you love, well put together, groomed on his best behavior, and well, is that still the case? The point is that the Lord knows our hearts from the very beginning. He knows the worst from the first. He knows us. He knows you. He knows you, your weakness. He knows the areas of life where you're tempted to turn away from him. He knows the areas of life that you struggle with, and still... He loved you so much that he would send Jesus into this world and into this life in order that he may redeem you, buy you back at a great cost to himself. And his prayer, Paul's prayer later in this book, is that we would understand how deep and how wide and how high and long is the love of Christ for us. It surpasses knowledge. It's beyond our comprehension. Our finite minds struggle, really, to comprehend fully the grace of God in Christ Jesus, in his love 
for us. Greater love has no man than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. Dear friends, let us love one another, John says, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It is because of the love of God that he sent Jesus. Why did he love us? Because he created us. Did he love us because of who we are and what we do? No, but he loved us as his creation, and he wanted to come and give us life, life even when we were dead in sin. F.B. Meyer wrote, it is a great comfort to know that God loved us when there was nothing to attract his love, because he will not be surprised by anything he discovers in us, and he will not turn from us at those manifestations of evil which sometimes make us lose heart. He knew the worst from the first. He did not love us because we were fair, but to make us so. We cannot understand it, but since he began, began, he will not fail nor be discouraged until he has finished his work. There is life through the love of God, spiritual life, abundant life, full life. I am the good shepherd. I have come that you may have life and life to the full, says Jesus. Not just there, but here and now as well. But there's also life through the mercy of God. We'll accelerate here uh, a wee bit quicker. God's mercy is nothing new. It is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. Go right back to Exodus, and the people have sinned and turned away from God and worshipped a golden calf. And God comes and he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. Right from the very beginning, there has been the wayward heart of man evidenced by its idolatry, even when, you could argue, in the close presence of God. And still, God is merciful. Psalm 85, the AV is a better rendering for us. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon thee. Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. All throughout Scripture, we've got this picture of a God who is merciful. But it's not just a mercy in the here and now, it's a mercy that is lasting. It's it's an eternal mercy. It keeps going. It's a recurring theme. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of his grace, it says. We'll come to grace in a moment. But mercy is different from grace, isn't it? Sometimes we mix the two things up. Mercy speaks of what God does not do, even though he would be justified in doing. It's in withholding his wrath. We deserve to be punished for our sin. We deserve to be judged. We deserve all of the things uh, that God would be justified in doing. But because he's rich in mercy, he withholds that which we are due. His mercy is inexhaustible. It is boundless. It's limitless. We give thanks for that this morning, because if you're anything like me, as James remind us, we stumble and we falter in many ways. Whilst we are dead in our sins, 
whilst we are dead in our enslavement and dead in our condemnation, we are made alive through the love of God. There is life through the mercy of God. And finally, there is life through the grace of God. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, etc. Grace is being given what we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding what we do deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. God's riches at Christ's expense, the famous acronym, of course, for, uh, or acrostic, is it? Acrostic. For, for uh, grace. We don't deserve it. We're not deserving of it. We don't merit it. We cannot earn it. But God gives it to us by his grace. The picture of the prodigal son returning to the father with a plan. I'm going to do this and I'm going to say that. And I've got my speech worked out and starting to say it. And the father running to meet him and embracing him and putting a robe on him and putting a, a ring on his finger and throwing a party. So it is that there'll be celebrations in heaven that says the angels will celebrate Luke 15 over one sinner who repents. It is by grace you have been saved. It's not of us. And that in itself is good news this morning because we can't do it and we wouldn't do it and we would fail to maintain it and we would stumble and we would falter. But God gives it to us as a, as a gift, as a grace. So whilst the reality is pretty bleak and dark, the reality of the gospel is good news this morning good news for the sinner good news for the wayward good news for those who have continuously failed and faltered because his faithfulness is everlasting his mercies are new each day says the psalmist in psalm 89 and he has promised to seat us in the heavenly realms not just then but now we have been raised with christ and seated with christ past tense we have been made new. The old has gone. The new has come, Paul reminds us in Corinthians. So this morning, as we come to the table, as we come to the bread and to the wine, I wonder where you are. I wonder if you are alive in Christ, alive through the love of God, alive through the mercy of God, alive in Christ through the grace of of God, unmerited, unwarranted, but received through faith in Jesus, that in him you are alive. And you take these elements as broken, sinful people, recognizing your own weakness and waywardness, and yet over against that, the, the steadfast, immovable, loving kindness of God, his chesed for us, his steadfast, loving kindness. But I wonder this morning if you'll let the elements pass by you as you're still outside Christ. You're still pursuing the things of the world, still seeking the fulfillment that you yearn, still looking for it. May I say to you that outside Christ, you're spiritually dead and without hope. That you are enslaved to sin, to the cultural ideals of the world that you're a part of, you're condemned as an object of God's wrath. And that is not easy to say. But that's the truth. 
And I would urge you to come and to receive and to know and to rejoice in and experience the love of God in Christ Jesus the Savior. The love of God in Christ Jesus the Savior and his mercy to you and in his grace extended through the gospel. May we all examine our own hearts this morning as we come to the table and may we all know the love, the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. God our Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its truth, truth that is unsettling and truth that is offensive to the human heart. We don't want to hear that we are spiritually dead. We don't want to hear that we are unworthy. We don't want to hear that we are unable to make the cut or reach the standard. It is offensive. And yet, Lord God, we thank you that uh, as we acknowledge that and understand that we find great hope. We find great hope in the love and in the mercy and in the grace of a God who has condescended to us in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has stood in our stead, the one who has borne our sin, the one who has taken the burden of guilt and shame upon himself, the one whose blood has been shed, the one who has overcome sin and death and who has raised, was raised victorious, and the one who has ascended to your right hand in the throne room of heaven, and the one who never lives now to intercede, to pray for his people, the one who is referred to as our advocate, the one who represents us before the Father in the throne room of heaven. And whilst we stand with him, we are chosen and reconciled and redeemed and restored and forgiven and renewed. We pray that each and every one would know that resting, that renewal, and that goodness today, we ask in Jesus' name.